Well, our sermon text is uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed there in the back of your bulletin. And I'll ask that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. It says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word one more time. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that uh, we we, uh, don't know Christ as we should, as we ought to. Many of us, even after many years of of knowing him truthfully, we ask that you would uh, give us understanding into your word. Work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we've been going through the book of, of Mark. We just started recently uh, at the, at the, uh, after the first of the year. Uh, last week, we looked at verses 21 through 28, and we saw there Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he, the, his teaching, we're told there, his teaching astonished the crowd there. And the thing about his teaching that astonished or shocked the crowd was that he taught with such great authority. He didn't teach the way the scribes did. He taught as one who had authority, the crowd says. And as if if that weren't enough, if you can imagine what this scene might have looked like, while he was teaching with this great authority and amazing or astonishing the crowd, uh, he was interrupted. Maybe not by a heckler, but by a demon-possessed man if you remember the the text there. And what happened? He simply commanded that demon to be quiet and come out. That's exactly what he did. The crowd in the synagogue, uh, they were amazed before that. Well, they were even more amazed now, as if his teaching wasn't authoritative enough. They wondered among themselves uh, what kind of new teaching with authority this must be that he even can command a demon, an unclean spirit, And it was helpless to obey him. Well, the news about Jesus after that point got around pretty quickly, didn't it? They didn't have social media. They didn't have the internet or television and newspapers and things. But it didn't take long for word to get around. And as we're going to see today and in coming weeks, that's a recurring theme in the book of Mark. It's almost as if Jesus tries to keep things quiet and word just can't be stopped. The word about Christ uh, got out pretty quick. In verse 28 of that passage, it says, At once his fame, literally it's his hearing, the people hearing about him, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So he teaches once at the synagogue, and word went out uh, like, like like a fire, like a wildfire it spread. Well, here in our text this morning, verses 29 to 34, The context is still that same Sabbath day. It's still the same day. It's still 
the Sabbath, and Jesus leaves that synagogue and kind of withdraws, so to speak, to the house of Simon and Andrew, two of his first four disciples. And James and John, the other two fishermen that Jesus had recently called, they tagged along as they too were also following Christ. And they may have been going there just to enjoy a meal together. We don't know what the, what the point was, but they were going uh, to the home of Simon and Peter's family on the Sabbath. Now, maybe when we read that text together, you might have thought, how many people were living in this house? You know, now, our day, that's not as common, but in their culture and in many cultures today, it's not uncommon at all to have the extended family live in the same home. Simon and Andrew weren't kids, uh, they, but they, they were grown men. Simon and Peter, at least we know, had, had a family here, uh, as well as his extended family living in that house and uh, Mark, Mark doesn't really comment on it. He just states the case the way it was. It didn't seem odd to him at all in his, his day. He just states the fact and moves along. But Now, Jesus, think about it. He's teaching. We don't know how long he was teaching in that synagogue. We don't know how tired he may have been. But he doesn't really get a break, does he? It seems like they're going to the house. They're going to take a break. But it seems like the minute he walks in the door, there's more work to do. There's more being demanded uh, of him. And in our text, along with the rest of, of the gospel, really, but the rest of chapter 1, Mark paints a picture of constant activity of people and crowds searching after Jesus, coming to him, demanding, asking from him, asking to be healed from disease, to be freed from demon oppression and possession. And we're going to see in our text two, two simple incidents. I'm, we're dividing the text up just the way that the text divides itself up this morning. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus healing one person. We're going to see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law. The second thing we're going to see is Jesus healing many people, not just one person, not just somebody he knew, but many people. And this account from early on in the earthly life of Jesus' ministry has a lot to tell us if we have the eyes to see, not just about Jesus' power, not just about Jesus' authority, although it does teach us that, but it also tells us about his willingness to save, about Jesus' compassion for the lost uh, among him and also among us in our day as well. So the first thing we see in our text there in verses 29 to 31 is Jesus' healing, the account of his healing of Peter's mother-in-law. It says in verse 30, Mark says, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Now, before we go too much farther into the actual miracle of the healing itself, uh, we should probably take some time to at least briefly note that Simon Peter was married. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so what? Lots of people are married. Why, wouldn't, why does it matter that Simon Peter was, was married? Well, uh, some of you who have had past experience with the Roman Catholic Church probably know exactly why I'm bringing this up this morning. The Roman Catholic Church holds a number of views that are contrary to Scripture uh, in many ways. They hold wrongly so that Simon Peter was the first pope and that their succession and their authority uh, is in succeeding from Peter as that first pope. They hold that the pope today is the successor of Peter who they held. They held Peter to be the primary apostle, that he was the first pope and the rest of the apostles were kind of his college of of uh, elders, so to speak. They also hold that their ministers are what? Priests, which is also unbiblical. 
But on top of all that, they teach that those priests must take a vow of celibacy. They must, be, they must remain unmarried. Now that's one of the many errors that the Protestant reformers like Martin Luther sought uh, to correct and rejected in the Reformation of the Church. You might know that after Martin Luther discovered the gospel, one of the many applications of that was what did he do? He got married. And he recommended that other people do the same thing, that ministers would get married. Well, not only has this unbiblical practice of the mandatory celibacy of the priests resulted in a litany of sexual immorality and scandal and abuse within the Roman Catholic Church, not just in our day, historically, it's been a scandal for hundreds of years in that church. And frankly, if you think about it, how could that not be the case? They're practically begging for it to happen by instituting an unbiblical, an unbiblical practice, by putting more upon their people, upon their ministers, than God himself does. It's no wonder such things happen. But most important of all, the, the practice is simply unbiblical. Peter was married. If he's supposed to be the first pope, someone didn't get the hint. Peter himself was married. Now, not only this passage in our text uh, points that out, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes this. What he's doing is he's kind of sticking up for his own rights and the fact that he, didn't, he often refused to, to use his own rights as an apostle. He says, do we, Paul writes, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles uh, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Peter has multiple names. Cephas and Simon and Peter. You need, it's almost like reading a Dostoevsky novel. You have to have a score sheet to know who's who. But, but he says the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. What does it say? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Not just any wife, a Christian wife, a wife in the Lord. What's he implying? Peter, in Peter's missionary journeys as an apostle, took his wife with him. Now Paul, Paul himself was not married, but Paul could have been. Paul says, do we not have the right to do so? If Paul wanted to get married, Paul could have gotten married and God would have blessed it greatly. But God's plan for Paul was different than that. But what's he saying? He's saying the other apostles did too. Even Peter. Now, in other words, it was the norm, wasn't it? It wasn't the exception at all. Who was the exception to the norm? Paul was, not Peter. Peter was the rule. Peter was, was the norm. The apostles and the other workers in the gospel of Christ, the gospel ministry, were normally married men. It was Paul, not Peter, who was the exception. Not only that, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of those two passages in the New Testament where, where the, the scripture lays out the qualifications for the office of, of overseer or elder or pastor, same, same basic office. Uh, what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 3, 2? He says that an elder, or again, or a pastor, must be, quote, the husband of one wife. Kind of odd to say if you're supposed to not be married. Wouldn't he say, hey, if they're married, tough luck. Sorry, you can't, you can't be an elder. No, a husband of one wife, an elder or a pastor or overseer, uh, does not need to be married. Uh, in our day, that might be the opposite extreme. We probably might, you know, if you, were, if you were interviewing a pastor or a potential pastor, 
I have a hunch in our day we might exclude someone who was single. And that, that shouldn't be the Paul was single. Paul wasn't married. We shouldn't go beyond what the scripture says. Uh, but an elder or a pastor uh, shouldn't, doesn't have to be married, but it certainly helps. I can attest to that. But if he's married, he must be the husband of one wife. His reputation must be one of faithfulness in his marriage. Not perfection. Just the reputation has to be that to be an elder. Now back to the healing of Simon's mother-in-law in our text. We're told in verse 30 that she lay ill with a fever. Now, she doesn't have a head cold. You know, she's not, I was going to make lunch, you guys, but I'm a little under the weather. She's laid up with a fever. She's, she's incapacitated. Now, we don't, she probably wasn't deathly ill. We don't know. It probably was not quite life and death. Uh, but then they didn't have the medical uh, facilities that we have uh, in, in our day. Whatever it was, though, she was seriously ill. She was incapacitated to the point where she couldn't do what she normally did. And what did, this, what did the disciples do? What's the first thing, according to Mark, that they did? It says immediately, verse 30, immediately, Mark's favorite word, right? They told him about her. They told Jesus. That was their first thought. That was their first impulse when he walked in the door was to tell Jesus about, about her. And why not? What did they just see in the synagogue? Jesus using his authority over a demon, an unclean spirit, and casting him out. They knew somehow that Jesus could do something. You know, it, it's, it, and really it's not, it's not formed in the phrase of a request, is it? It's implied. Hey, look, she's sick. The implied faith there is, is uh, remarkable. You know, they weren't dumb. They, they saw the thing that just happened in that synagogue, and so they told Jesus, if Jesus could heal a demon-possessed man, certainly he could deal with a fever. Now, you know, he, how did he heal that demon-possessed man with just a word? He rebuked the demon, the demon came out, and that man was made whole. Uh, if he could do that, he could certainly heal and help Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Well, let this be a couple lessons to us at least. There's at least a couple things we can learn from that. First, let's not treat prayer as a last resort for anything. If someone's ill, it doesn't mean don't go to the doctor, right? God, God uses means. God uses secondary causes. He does that very often. If there was a doctor in the house, they wouldn't have just not shown her to, to the doctor. But, but let's not treat prayer like a last resort, Let's not be reluctant to take our concerns, however uh, small they may seem to us. Let's take those concerns to the Savior. If someone is ill, let us be quick to take their concerns to the great physician. Our first instinct should be to pray. Go to the doctor? Yes, go to the doctor, but pray. The second lesson for us in our text, look at how willing our Lord is to heal and to help. Look at how quick he is and how willing he is to help. Look how quickly he shows compassion on her and so also on Simon and Andrew as well. In verse 31, Mark says, And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You know, Jesus could have just spoken, right? How did he heal that demon-possessed that, that demon man in the synagogue? 
rebukes a demon. He could have just said with a wave of a hand, okay, she's fine, go, go check. No, he, he takes her by the hand and lifts her up. In a parallel account in Luke's gospel, it's also found in Matthew's gospel, Luke says in Luke 4.39 that Jesus, quote, rebuked the fever. He rebuked the fever and it left her. At the touch of Jesus Christ, her fever was gone. It was completely gone. It was instantly gone. No recovery period needed. You know, if you go to the doctor and, and everything goes right, whether it be you know, through, through medicine of some kind or whatnot, and, uh, and by God's grace, whatever they, they do for you works, you usually aren't instantly healed. Even if your fever breaks, there's a recovery time. But what do you see Peter's mother-in-law doing? Right away, she gets up and gets right to work serving them. Probably making a mealtime after, after the synagogue. She was that completely made whole. That's how Jesus healed her. And isn't that a picture of the grace of God at work in the gospel? Jesus takes helpless sinners and makes them completely whole. And what, what did they do? You know, what do they do at, when they're made whole by the Savior out of his grace and mercy? They get to work serving him. They get to work serving other people. They get to work serving him all their days. Jesus does not save those who serve as if we somehow earn his mercy. That's to get it backwards. That's to get it wrong. Rather, he saves those who then serve. He doesn't save servants. He creates servants by saving them. We have to keep that order straight. When we tell Jesus of our loved ones in prayer, those who are lost, those who are astray from him, when we pray for their salvation or for their repentance, do we somehow imagine while we're praying that he is somehow slow to show compassion for them and for us as well? Do we picture a reluctant Savior that really doesn't want to answer our prayers for our loved ones and people that we care about and pray for on a regular basis. Let's take the words of Psalm 103 to heart. We actually sang Psalm 103 earlier in the service. Psalm 103, verses 11 to 13, David there writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's the God we pray to in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the God we pray to for our lost loved ones and loved ones who are astray from him. Now, we serve a God who, according to that psalm, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He shows compassion to his children like a good father. That's, that's what we have to keep in mind when we pray. And this picture of this healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law is really a picture for us of prayer. Of telling him, telling the Savior about those who need him. It's not as if he doesn't already know about them. But we should be convinced in our heart of hearts that he's quick to show compassion and mercy. He's someone who's quick and willing to answer the prayers of his people. Well, the second healing that we see in our text in verse 32 to 34 is the healing of many. 
the healing of many, verses 32 to 33, Mark writes, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And maybe when you read that, you might have kind of skimmed right past that first phrase there in the text. That evening at sundown. Why so late? Why did they wait till the sun went down when Jesus is probably good and tired from a long day to bring the people to him? What day was it? It was still the Sabbath, wasn't it? It was still the Sabbath day. The people had been taught a very twisted legalistic view of the fourth commandment by the religious leaders of their day. These poor souls thought that even to bring a sick friend to get help would somehow constitute working on the Sabbath and so be in violation of the fourth commandment. Now the fourth commandment, there's nothing wrong with it. The Sabbath is is a good thing. It's a gift of God. It's one of those rare gifts that the, the recipients are too stupid to appreciate. Right? That's us. We feel like it's a burden rather than this is, this is the day God gives us as a gift. And so we're constantly tempted to break in in all kinds of ways. By actual work, bringing a sick friend to get help is not a violation of the fourth commandment. It's not breaking the Sabbath. As Jesus, as we're going to see as you go through Mark, he has to teach us that over and over and over and over again, that this isn't that. This is not a breaking of that commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, is not breaking the Sabbath commandment. Well, not working on the Sabbath was and is forbidden. You can't play fast and loose with the text, right? It does say, on it you shall do what? Not do any work. So work per se, actual work, is meant to be forbidden on the the Sabbath. And that is a large part. What does it mean to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? as we're told in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. It does involve abstaining from work. Uh, But was the Sabbath intended by God to prevent us from loving our neighbors? Was Was it an escape clause to get you out of helping those who are in need? Sorry, it's Sunday. You know, I'd love to pull over and help you change that tire on the side of the road, but, you know, I'm going to be late for church and I'm going to get my hands dirty. That sounds like uh, something. Maybe you know, if your car had broken down on a Monday, it just waited a day, you know, then I mean, maybe I could have helped you, but God doesn't want me to help. No, it's certainly not what the, what the Sabbath commandment was, was, was about. Uh, we're going to see as we go through Mark's gospel again and all the gospels, if you read through them, uh, that this is a recurring theme in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's constantly, it almost seems like he waits for the Sabbath to heal someone, just to make the point to the religious leaders of the day. Many of his confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees is over this exact issue. So I won't belabor the point. We'll have much time to go through it uh, in the rest of the gospel. But picture the scene that Mark is painting for us here. As soon as the sun goes down, the people hurry to bring to Jesus everyone who was sick were oppressed by demons. It's as if they were waiting at the, at the front door of their, of their homes and looking and watching for the sun to go down. And as soon as it went down, okay, go! And they ran and grabbed everybody they could find. You know, they couldn't make a line starting at noon. Uh, but they brought everybody that they could think of to Jesus Christ. And, and what does he say there? How big of a crowd was it? What, what's the way that Mark describes it there? He says uh, in verse... 
33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, I don't know how big the city was. I don't know how many people lived there, but it must have been quite a scene. I doubt Peter's house was that big. It doesn't say they were in the door. They probably couldn't fit anywhere close to being in the door. Now, when he says the word gathered there, it's kind of a play on words. The word for the crowd being gathered, it really comes from the same word from which we get the word in verse 29, synagogue, which is what? What's a synagogue? It's a gathering place. Sin means, S-Y-N, means together. And to ago means to, to gather or to lead. And so it's a play on words. It's, it's basically saying that the first verse, Jesus left the synagogue, and then what happens? The synagogue comes to Jesus. He's at the house, maybe looking for a break, and the whole town shows up. The whole town shows up at Peter's house. Now that's also a recurring theme in Mark's gospel, especially in chapter 1. If you read through chapter 1 tonight, maybe today at lunchtime or something, notice Jesus can't get away from people. Every time he tries to go somewhere, people are following after him. It's a recurring theme. Crowds of people are flocking in the Gospel of Mark, especially in chapter 1, to Jesus. And I think that's meant to be, for us, a picture of the power of the Gospel. You know, I think we think of it the exact opposite. You know, we, we think, well, you know, we need to get the word out as much as we can, but nobody's going to come. Right? Jesus almost seems to try to hide and you can't stop people from coming to him. It's, he's, he's, to, he's telling the demons to be quiet, to not say, he doesn't let them speak, but somehow the word just gets out. And we're going to see that as we go on. What, what did Jesus do? You know, we don't know how, he, you know, he's flesh and blood. Uh, he has a true humanity just like us. I'm sure he was tired at the end of a long day. Did he hang a closed sign on the door? Did he say, come back tomorrow, come back at sunrise? You know, on Sunday, and I'll, and I'll, I'll help you out. Uh, did he tell them to come back later or come to a different day and, and talk to him later? He's tired. No, he healed, he healed them. Verse 34, Mark says, He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He healed many. Now, really what Mark's implying is he healed everybody. It, he, Mark's not saying, you know, Jesus kind of picked and chose and said, well, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. He didn't say eeny, meeny, miny, moe. He didn't say, everybody sit down and count off by ones and twos. Okay, today the ones get it. Today the ones get healed, the twos, you know, sorry. Come back next Sabbath, you know, come back next, next week. He, he healed all of them. He healed them, every single one. He healed those who were oppressed by demons. He cast those demons out, all of them. And he didn't even allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. They recognized him, just like the demon we saw in the synagogue. Unlike the people, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Did the people really understand what was going on? No. Did the disciples know what was going on? No, we know from Mark's one of those of the four Gospels. He's the one that kind of is quick to point out the failings and the misunderstandings and the screw-ups of the apostles. And remember who... Whose perspective is he telling here? Peter's. Of all the disciples, who would be the one that would be most, most humble in saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, screwed up, I screwed up my share and more, more than my fair share. Well, that's Mark's. Uh, but here you've got this demon, or many of them, and they knew who they were dealing with. And what does Jesus do? Doesn't let them talk. Doesn't let them tell everybody who he is. There's a lot of explanations for that. I know I had a professor that said that this is, it makes some sense. It's bad press. 
you know, it, uh, the only thing I could think about would be, you know, if you're a, a candidate for a Republican nomination to be president, you know, and you're hoping to get the, the most, whatever, whatever the case, if you're conservative, moderate, whatever, you know, you want to have endorsements. You want to have people that are important, that people look up to on your side of the party, on your side of the aisle, endorse you. Well, if you're, I won't name a name, but if you're on the Republican ticket or trying to get on the ticket and somebody on the far, far left says, that's my guy, you, know, you, you probably don't want that endorsement. You probably don't want the most far left Democrat to endorse you, right? Uh, so I've been told before that it's bad press that Jesus is trying to avoid. You know, demons aren't the best, uh, probably the best way to get people's attention. And that may be part of it. Uh, but in many ways, he just doesn't want them to talk. He, he tries to keep things quiet early on in the Gospel of Mark. Not that it kept people from finding out about him by any stretch of the imagination so far. And that's also another recurring theme in Mark. Jesus trying to quiet things down in the early going before he goes to the Passion Week in Jerusalem. Well, he refused none of those who came to him for mercy and help. I think that's the thing that we're supposed to, to pick up on in this text. You might be tempted to think, you know, that Peter's mother-in-law, that one we get. That one, you know, she had an in, right? She was Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter kind of got her in. You know, people, uh, when they find out you're a pastor, they think you have a special in. You know, well, if pastor prays for me, and I love to pray for people, as if a normal person can't pray the same, right? As if I have some different route to get to, get to God because I'm a pastor. Not, nothing can be further from the truth. Well, Peter's mother-in-law wasn't the exception. She didn't get special treatment just because she had an in because of her sons following Christ. Here we see that's not what happened at all. Jesus doesn't reserve his mercy and compassion for a select few, but rather shows mercy and grace to all who will simply come to him to find grace. That's what we should be remembering about Christ. None of us are worthy of his mercy and compassion. Not a single one of us. Not a single one. Romans 3, verses 23 to 24, it says, For what? All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say there? How many have fallen short? All. How many have sinned? All. But all who come to Jesus Christ by faith, all, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption implies his death, doesn't it? His death is the payment for sin. He didn't die to redeem righteous people, did he? He didn't rise from the dead on the third day to justify righteous people, but sinners. That's what the gospel says. As Jesus told the Pharisees and scribes in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. None of us on our own outside of Christ are well. All of us outside of Christ stand in need, dire need of the great physician and the healer of souls. He has come to call sin-sick sinners like us to himself that he might make us whole. John chapter 6 verse 37, there Jesus himself says this, 
All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will what? I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does that mean? There's a lot of things you could say about that. But whoever comes to Christ, he will not turn them away. Election doesn't mean that. Sometimes we have these odd ideas of predestination and election where we picture somebody coming to Christ and Jesus saying, well, I didn't pick you. Sorry. No. If you come to him, it means he picked you from before the foundation of the world. The only reason you came to him is because he chose you. And if God, his Father, gives you to him, you will come to him and he will never cast you out. That's how rock solid your salvation in Christ is. Whoever comes to him, he will in no way, by no means, cast out or turn away at the door. That's the message of Mark 1, verses 29 to 34. Do you believe that? That anybody who comes to him, who looks to him for mercy, will never be turned away by him? Do you believe that? More importantly, have you come to Jesus Christ to have life in his name? If so, he will never turn you away. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this account in Mark's gospel that you have given us to show not just your son's power to heal, his authority over all things to heal and to cast out unclean spirits, but that you might demonstrate both to those people who were there at Peter's house and us who are here in your house this morning that we might see the the great compassion and willingness to save of your Son, our Savior and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that that is why he came. Forgive us for the ways and the times in which we have, uh, each of us in some ways, not really believed how willing he is to save, that he came not to seek and save the the righteous, but that he might call the, the, the lost sinners to repentance. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us, give us grace. Increase our faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to believe that you sent your Son to save sinners, and not just to save a little handful here and there, but that you sent him to save and redeem a multitude that is going to be in heaven, according to the book of Revelation, that no man will ever be able to count because it will be so big. Give us faith as that to, to reach out with the gospel to others, to call people to look to Christ by faith and live, and we ask that you would use us, use us and our sister churches here in town as lighthouses for the gospel. Call sinners to yourself, build your kingdom, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.